0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Homefulness Podcast, a conversation dedicated to making home in our multifaceted culture of displacement. I'm your host, Andrew Stevens rennie
1: Human dignity is therefore inherent to all individuals. Human rights are not ends in themselves, but the conditions for the realization of human dignity. Therefore, the church must give a preferential option for the poor, rather than giving primacy to individual freedoms.
0: In today's episode, we hear from the Reverend Michael Shapcott, coming to us from the Sorrento Center, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Sowetmec peoples. Michael shares from decades working on the front lines and in back rooms to secure the right to dignified and affordable housing for all people in Canada.
1: I want to begin by uh, once again uh, acknowledging that the Sorrento Centre, uh, where I am, uh, is on the traditional unceded land of the uh, Suepnik people, Suwepnikulu. And uh, those of you that were with us last week will remember there was a short uh, clip from uh, Suwepnik storyteller Kenton Thomas. Uh, Kenton uh, reminded us of, um, uh, of uh, a few things that were... Um, uh, very important. One of the things that Kenton reminded us uh, last week was that in the Swetnik, uh tradition, words really arose out of a practical observation of the world around, looking at this and that and, and then naming things that they saw. And then out of that collection of words, stories began to form. And then out of stories uh, came laws. And so what I want to do today is... Um, I really want to um, uh, speak a little bit about, uh, first of all, a story, and then I want to speak a little bit about some laws. So the story that I want to uh, share with you is one from uh, the Christian tradition, and this particular story of Lazarus and the rich man was one that uh, left a lot of people puzzled. Uh, In in the story, as Jesus told it, there was no name for the rich man, but um, by tradition, People have called the rich man Dives. Dives is actually just a Latin word for rich. Um, it's also a corruption of the word divine. So it's a bit of a joke. This guy thought that he was pretty hot stuff. So the story is very simple. There's a rich man. He used to dress in purple and finest linen and feasted sumptuously every day. Uh, at his gate uh, lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Uh, Lazarus would have been glad to satisfy his hunger from the scraps from the table. Dogs used to come and look at his store. So that's the basic story. And then the dramatic moment one day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And then in Hades, where he was in torment, and that's basically the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Boom, end of story. So the question is that people have debated is why did Dives the rich man end up in torment? What, what did he do? Was he a bad rich man? There's no indication in the story that Dives kicked Lazarus or treated him badly. In 21st century terms, Dives was a very productive rich man. Look at all the servants that he's got. He's He's supporting the local economy in all sorts of ways. Look at the rich lifestyle he's leading. Dives was a good rich man and doing good things, at least in 21st century economic terms. So why did Divez end up in torment? And of course, the simple answer, but the powerful answer is Dives just did not even see the humanity or dignity uh, in Lazarus. He just did not even see the poor man in front of him because he was too busy being rich and paying attention to his uh, rich uh, lifestyle. And I want you to sort of hold on to that, because, you know, when, when Carmen was talking about empathy and human-centered design and the need for us to see the other person and to really engage deeply with the other person, that's the very powerful message of Lazarus and the rich man, uh, is that when you ignore somebody, you're cast down into a hell of isolation and deprivation. Anyway... Let's fast forward to uh, november twenty second of uh, 2017 and um, very important man, uh, prime minister trudeau um, uh, at a press conference on november twenty second of 2017 so a couple of years ago now um, uh, slightly more than two years ago, three years ago he um he uh, announced a national housing strategy, a ten year national housing strategy and 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 said it would cost about it would fund it with about $40 billion in, in funding. Now, many housing advocates, including me, had been contacted by the prime minister's office in advance and told you got to come out to this press conference. Um, a number of us, and I will confess to this myself, I felt a bit weary about it. I was tired of going to press conferences where we would stand, listen to the announcement, and then we'd go to the press and we would say, it's a good first step that's nice, you know, they've made a down payment, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so we asked in advance, what was the prime minister going to announce? So we were told that he would announce $13 billion over 10 years. And, you know, for most of us, $13 billion sounds like a lot of money, but uh, it really isn't all that much for a big country like Canada with the scale of our housing needs. So we went to this press conference expecting that we would uh, once again have an announcement of a 13 billion dollar national housing strategy over 10 years and uh, that that would um and then we just simply sigh and disappointment and we would say well once again good first step nice down payment we got to keep going until we get some real money on on the table so imagine our surprise when we actually heard that it was $40 billion, and $40 billion starts to get into some serious money when we're talking about, uh, about this. And so we were kind of interested and kind of excited about this um, national housing strategy announcement in 2017. Now, I want to say to you, first of all, that the choice of the date that the prime minister uh, had for this announcement was not accidental. It's what's called National Housing Day, and uh, many of you will know that National Housing Day was actually a day that uh, a group called the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee and the National Housing and Homelessness Network, which uh, worked together, established way back in the 1990s. And we called it National Housing Day because on that day, uh, we went to uh, the Mayor of Toronto and the mayors of a number of other cities across the, uh, the country, and we said, you should declare homelessness a national disaster. And that way, the federal government will be required to put money into rebuilding uh, or to building new housing and to helping people who are suffering from the housing and homelessness disaster. So National Housing Day was started by advocates as a way of highlighting the national nationwide homelessness disaster. And by 2017, it had been taken over by the federal government to make an announcement. So hooray for the federal government for making an announcement and, and Quite a substantial announcement. What was even more exciting to us was part of that 2017 announcement was a commitment by the federal government that the internationally recognized right to housing uh, that was uh, first set out in 1948 in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights would be incorporated into Canadian law. Up until this point, housing was not uh, recognized as a right in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, Housing was not recognized. Some courts would read housing in through international law and so on, but for the most part, uh, it was not recognized in Canadian law. So for us, it was very exciting. And indeed, on June twenty first, 2019, Bill C-97 received Royal Assent, the National Housing Strategy Act, uh, and on this day, uh, the uh, internationally recognized right to housing became Canadian law. And... uh, some people don't spend a lot of time reading uh, uh, pieces of federal legislation, but this is a particularly interesting one. And In the preamble, I just want to read a couple of uh, sections. The opening preamble, housing is essential to the inherent dignity and well-being of the person. And then it goes on at the very end of the preamble to say that um. The National Housing Strategy will support the progressive realization of the right to adequate housing as recognized in the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. So those rather dry expressions really open up a powerful new area for all of us in Canada who care about homes, who care about homemaking, and who care about homelessness to position housing as a fundamental right of everyone and a right based not on uh, our ability to be able to pay rent or to pay a mortgage, but based on our inherent dignity as human beings. Each of us have this right, very powerful. Now, if you were to speak to uh, Prime Minister Trudeau either in 2017 or 2019 and say, where did you get the idea for, first of all, $40 billion uh, and for a national housing strategy? And secondly, where did you get the idea for, uh, Uh, bringing the internationally recognized right to housing into Canadian law, what the Prime Minister would say, and I know this because I actually asked him this question, uh, he said, we care about people, we're a good government, we do nice things. In other words, we're a benevolent government, we know uh, good things, and uh, we're doing this out of the goodness of our hearts for, uh, for all Canadians. And he went on to say that it's the first time there was a national housing strategy in Canada, uh, and it was uh, like nothing else anywhere in the history of this, uh, uh, of this country. And both of those points, as you'll see in a moment, are in fact uh, not true. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I bring them up because in the ongoing conversation and often tension between housing advocates uh, who are trying to advance public policy and politicians, you often have these kinds of dances where politicians want to insist that things like fundamental human rights are actually gifts that politicians freely bestow on individuals as opposed to human rights exist and the obligation on the part of governments is to support the progressive realization of those rights. I want to take us back a few years, back to uh, uh, the 1930s and uh, early 1940s. Um, of course, the 1930s for much of the world was a time of global depression, uh, a time of massive poverty, uh, inequity, uh, a time when the um, uh, system of capitalism as it existed uh, in those days was being shaken to its very, very core, and the storm clouds of war were gathering on the horizon. Archbishop William Temple was the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, the head of the um, Church of England and the uh, uh, titular head of the Anglican Church worldwide, and he was very active uh, in uh, engaging in uh, in what we would now call social issues. And uh, he uh, he s- talked about uh, how during the depression, bad housing, malnutrition, unemployment were a wanton and cruel uh, callous cruelty. And he said that it's this is not just about politics, but it's about morality. That the existing, the charge against our social system is one of injustice. And William Temple worked with William Beveridge and with others to design what became known as the welfare state uh, in the post-war uh, period in England. Uh, national housing, national healthcare, uh, national education systems, and so on. All of the elements of uh, the great uh, welfare state which was designed to lift up the, um, uh, the dignity of individuals and to uh, uh, to counter the wanton and callous cruelty that was observed in the economic and social systems before the war. It wasn't just William Temple, of course. Um, uh, other people of faith uh, had been uh, deeply engaged, uh, the Catholic Church through Catholic social teaching, starting in the latter part of the uh, Uh, The 19th century, uh, many people in the social gospel movement, which began to take um, uh, significant um, measure in the early part of the 20th century, and the World Council of Churches, when it began and its predecessor organizations, in the 30s, they began to focus on a particular issue that for them uh, was very important to their expression of faith, but it was also very important to the world around them. And this is a statement for the World Council of Churches uh, uh, in the uh, 1930s. Human beings are seen to possess a transcendental worth not subordinate to any other end. Human dignity is therefore inherent to all individuals. Human rights are not ends in themselves, but the conditions for the realization of human dignity. Therefore, the church must give a preferential option for the poor rather than giving primacy to individual freedoms or even at the expense of basic human necessities. So human dignity became the sort of rallying cry. And I think in some ways, this is kind of um, the European and uh, uh, Christian phrase that tries in some way to capture some of the meaning that um, uh, here in uh, Canada, our indigenous uh, friends tell us when they use the phrase, all my relations, human dignity is this notion that everyone has inherent value? So, as the 1940s progressed, and the um, the it was still a bit unclear in the early part of the 1940s which way the war would go. Uh, however, there were people beginning to think about the post-war period. What kind of world did we want after the war? And uh, people did not. Many people did not want the same world that they had in the 1930s—a a world of inequality. They wanted a world that was based on a different set of uh, principles and a Canadian named John Peters Humphrey uh, was recruited uh, by Eleanor Roosevelt who was one of the uh, most important catalysts in the development of the United Nations and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and uh, John Peter hum- John Peters Humphrey uh, became the principal drafter of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights he became the the uh, head of the first human rights department of the United Nations And he was so quintessentially Canadian that uh, in the 1950s when the UN was handing out awards for um, people who had done distinguished service to the UN, uh, they gave inadvertently, they gave the award for human rights and for the universal declaration of human rights. They inadvertently gave it to a French person uh, and John Peter Humphreys didn't say, wait a minute, that's mine. He just said, it's okay, I've got work to do. I'll just carry on. So he was a good, a good um, a quintessential Canadian, a former law professor at McGill University who uh, uh, who went on. Many people think that um, the uh, basic notions that are incorporated in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that were uh, in there drafted by John Peters Humphreys came out of his own childhood. He um, had a physical disability as as a boy and was teased. Uh, other people suggest that in the 1930s, as a law professor, he traveled through Germany and he saw the uh, the, the storm clouds uh, uh, of the Holocaust and uh, uh, other terrible things. Uh, John Peters Humphreys uh, uh, was uh, and is a Canadian to be celebrated because of his uh, uh, his uh, work with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And here we see the language um, that. Uh, before I mentioned to you as in the legislation in 2019, so that language comes directly out of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, drafted by John Peters Humphreys, adopted by the global community through the United Nations in 1948, and it begins, whereas recognition of inherent dignity and equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world. And uh, that the peoples of the United Nations have reaffirmed their faith in fundamental human rights and the dignity and worth of the human person. And then, in Article 25, one is the first uh, articulation in modern terms of the international right to housing, uh, which is bundled in with the right to health and well-being. Uh, as uh, the uh, uh, universal, uh, the, the United Nations uh, human rights framework began to take shape. There were subsidiary legal agreements uh, uh, that were uh, developed in the 1960s one of them the international covenant on economic social and cultural rights another one the international covenant on civil and political rights and uh, these gave further definitions to what uh, the right to housing really meant and again the word inherent dignity is the framing principle the notion that everybody everybody Uh, has these equal and inalienable rights Uh, and what the international covenant did in article 11 is it made two significant additions to the international notion of the um, uh, right to housing Uh, they uh in addition to saying that people have the right to housing adequate food clothing and housing they say that the people have the right to a continuous improvement of living conditions and this is what lawyers have taken to call non-retrogression that uh, countries have an obligation to move forward and not to move backwards. And I'll come to that in a moment in terms of Canada's housing history. And uh, also that uh, there is a fundamental obligation on governments uh, to take appropriate steps to ensure the realization of the rights. So governments don't bestow human rights. Uh, governments ensure that they're realized. And that is uh, fundamentally uh, an important thing. And, you know, in 2019, when uh, the Canadian Parliament uh, 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 brought the internationally recognized right to housing into Canadian law and recognized it. They weren't bestowing rights on us that we didn't already have. They're simply taking up their obligation to ensure the realization of this right. Now this is this is a moral question and not just a legal question and it's become the fundamental basis for many housing advocates, uh, the, the notion of the human right to adequate housing. And uh, the Archbishop, uh, uh, previous Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, uh, spoke about uh, on the 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that it's become a global benchmark for identifying injustices. But he went on to say that what's most important about human rights is not their individual function, but what's most important, and he's and I've underlined this. Rights are a crucial way of working out what it is for people to belong together in a society. What does it mean for us to live together as human beings, all with inherent dignity? How do we organize ourselves? And that's where the notion of human rights comes in. And uh, he goes on to, uh, to say that some people think that human rights are individualistic. And we can look to our friends in the United States who say, I have the right to own guns and I have the right to this and I have the right to that. But in in fact, the notion of human rights as it was developed with the Universal Declaration based on universal uh, human uh, dignity is that, uh, and and again, I'm gonna quote um, Rowan, every individual's account of their own needs or desires has to be thought about and negotiated in the context of mutual recognition and a basic empathy between people living out the same human condition. And if that's all a little bit dense theological stuff, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said it in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech in a quite a, a lovely way. We've inherited a large house, a great world house in which we all have to live together, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interest who, because we can never live apart, must learn somehow to live with each other in peace. The large house in which we live demands that we transform this worldwide neighborhood. Into a worldwide brotherhood, and uh, Dr. King understood that human rights uh, are the foundation on which we uh, learn how we can live together in justice. And of course, uh, Brian Walsh and uh, Stephen Boomer Prediger, who have both um, have been central to this homefulness uh, exercise, have uh, in some ways they reflect back on um, uh, the uh, the story of Lazarus and the rich man because what has actually happened in our society is rather than us coming together uh, and recognizing the inherent dignity of everyone and uh, mutual recognition, uh, what we've created is a culture of displacement, exile and homelessness, uh, that um, we have socioeconomic homelessness, uh, e- uh, ecological homelessness, including alienation from a degraded and defiled earth and a profound spiritual homelessness. So. um, While the aspiration of 1948 and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was a notion we all have a framework in which we can live together, Uh, in fact, our socioeconomic uh, system has generated a different goal. Now, I want to just say a couple of quick things. Um, I mentioned to you that uh, Prime Minister uh, uh, Justin Trudeau in uh, 2017 said that his national housing Act was the first ever in the history of Canada. Well, in fact, someone else, it turned out it was actually his father, um, Pierre Trudeau, in uh, Parliament in 1973 introduced the National Housing Act. And uh, the Housing Minister of the day stood in Parliament and said this, good housing at a reasonable cost is a social right of every citizen of this country. This must be our objective our obligation and our goal. And two very important things happened with the National Housing Act of 1973. First of all, Canada turned a corner from our previous Housing for Low-Income People program, which was what we now call public housing or uh, housing projects. So we were putting people in badly designed uh, buildings uh, in uh, poorly designed neighborhoods, uh, where we gave little thought to the people actually living in those neighborhoods. And we... um, uh, we uh, said that's good enough for them, beggars can't be choosers. The National Housing Act of 1973 uh, uh, enabled a large number of new homes to be built and almost all of the new homes that were built, uh, in fact, all the new homes that were built were either nonprofit homes or cooperative homes, so they were built outside of the housing market and they were built with the idea that the people who living in the homes actually mattered. Many of those homes, uh, a substantial portion of them, were built by churches, community organizations, faith communities uh, over the years. Uh, I lived for many years in a housing co-op that was built under the National Housing Program of 1973. And just as a quick note, uh, in the United States at almost exactly the same time in 1973, they switched courses and stopped building big housing projects there because they recognized that they weren't working so well for the people living in the housing projects. But instead of adopting a community-based co-op and nonprofit approach, which is what Canada did, in the United States, they decided to subsidize the private sector through uh, various incentive programs. Uh, And uh, many people have commented that next to the Department of Defense, uh, some of the biggest uh, corruption uh, in um, American government is in the housing programs where, uh, Uh, wealthy uh, developers have gotten lots of money to uh, build quite suspect housing. So that was the story then but unfortunately there began to be a devolution of housing and starting with uh, the election of a neoliberal prime minister, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney in the 1980s and uh, then um, Prime Minister Kretschmer uh, and his finance minister Paul Martin and then Ontario of uh, housing minister, or sorry, uh, uh, Premier Mike Harris. And uh, I'll, I'll just say a quick story. Um, in the late 1990s, uh, a group of housing advocates hosted a, uh, a forum at Church of the Holy Trinity in downtown Toronto. And we wanted to um, move forward the national housing campaign. Uh, we invited uh, Ursula Franklin to speak. Ursula, many of you will know, is a very distinct, was a very distinguished scientist, uh, peace activist, a Quaker, and a person with a very fierce tongue. And uh, when uh, Dr. Franklin was speaking, she referred to homelessness uh, and housing, uh, the housing crisis as being a man-made disaster. And I went to uh, Dr. Franklin uh, after the uh, speech, and I thanked her for her words, and I said, but, you know, we try and be... Uh, general uh, gender non-specific and we don't want to blame one gender and she said what was the gender of the prime minister who cut the national housing program what's the gender of the current prime minister she said it's a man-made disaster uh the the uh, the story is very familiar to many of us the rise of mass homelessness in the 1990s because our population increased but annual investment in housing decreased despite a profound commitment by the government in 1973 politics shifted and the united nations special rapporteur on the right to housing during his visit to canada in 2009 uh, concluded that many good things had happened but there's been a significant erosion of housing rights and in particular what he was pointing to was that clause in the uh, international covenant on economic civil and political rights that says that uh, governments have to ensure a progressive uh, realization of uh, a progressive realization of of uh, housing and not Uh, move backwards, not take steps backward. So, um, uh, Canada has been taking steps back, taking steps backwards, and and I won't spend a lot of time with this, but the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development in 2008, uh, in their uh, report, Growing Unequal, and when they looked at Canada, what they found was that in the 1970s, Canada had relatively high uh, poverty rates, about 15%, uh, and by the 1990s, we had uh, cut our poverty rates almost by 50%. And the way we did that was with a National Housing Program and with targeted income programs for senior women and other uh, other groups. And we actually, uh, the government's actually reduced uh, uh, poverty and we came close to realizing our obligations under the International Covenant. Um, but um, as, as uh, those programs were cut in the 1990s, poverty began to rise again. So that takes us back to uh, 2017, and the context in which we look at a $40 billion 10-year investment is a context that, for the previous 20 years, there's been a significant um, cut in investment. So we're we're not even catching up to where we would have been if the government had maintained the previous national housing strategy of 1973 instead of cutting it in uh, 1993. But there the uh, There are a number of components uh, to the uh, uh, announcements uh, that were made. And in the breakout room, uh, what I hope to do is to talk with people about specific ideas in their communities and how they fit in. I will just simply say that uh, the federal government um, seems to have some difficulty in terms of uh, releasing some of the $40 billion uh, or a good portion of the $40 billion they promised, uh, even though many groups, including our own little South Shoeswap Housing Society have gone to the federal government, and said we've got a great project. Give us some money. And I think I want to just end with uh, some some words, which uh, I think are the mirror to the story of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And they pick up um, on Carmen's uh, notion that we need to look around us and and engage with the people around us. Aruna Ganadison. Uh, was with the World Council of Churches, and uh, she uh, offers this blessing. The world now is too dangerous and too beautiful for anything but love. May your eyes be so blessed you see God in everyone, your ears so you hear the cry of the poor. May your hands be so blessed that everything you touch is a sacrament, your lips so you speak nothing but the truth with love. May your feet be so blessed you run to those who need you. And may your heart be so open, so set on fire that your love, your love changes everything.
0: Again, friends, my name is Andrew Stevens-Rennie. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others find us. Michael Shapcott is the executive director of the Sorrento Center, which offers year-round programs, retreats, and workshops, all grounded in the Christian tradition. You can find out more about their offerings at www.sorrentocenter.ca. The Homefulness Podcast was developed by Empire Remixed in a partnership with the Sorrento Center, co-hosts of the National Beyond Housing to Homefulness Symposium in Spring 2021.